Hi EBF, um, we're continuing this week in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and uh, like you to join me as we read that. I'll be reading from the ESV and um, please read along with me aloud if you're able. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the entire chapter. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect is come, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As we continue our worship this morning, it is my joy to be able to preach God's word again this week. Thank you, Paul, for reading 1 Corinthians 13 for us, and, and thank you to everyone who has taken part during the services, during these, this virtual time. It, it's so good to see different faces each week and, and just even have that minuscule moment of connection with each other. Uh, just the other week, uh, I watched the Pixar movie Brave for the first time. For those of you who haven't seen it, the story is about a Scottish princess who, despite her mother's wishes, doesn't want to be your stereotypical princess. From the very beginning of the film, Princess Merida is a free-spirited, adventurous, and somewhat rebellious child, and her mother, Queen Eleanor, desires for her to behave like a princess should. There was one scene in particular that really stood out to me. There is a montage towards the beginning of the movie of Princess Merida doing very unprincess-like things with a voiceover of her mother telling her to do the exact opposite of the things that she's doing if she is to really behave like a princess. A princess, 
must be knowledgeable about her kingdom, the queen says. She doesn't doodle. A princess does not chortle, doesn't stuff her gob, rises early, is compassionate, patient, cautious, clean, and above all, a princess strives for, well, perfection. Immediately, I thought, that kind of sounds like 1 Corinthians 13. Queen Eleanor wants Princess Merida to know what a princess is and what a princess isn't, just like how God wants us to know what love is and what it isn't. But with every passing scene and as the movie goes on, Queen Eleanor's resemblance to God fades more and more. You know, she wants the best for her child, but it turns out she is a controlling, overly strict disciplinarian. And by the end of the movie, her character needs to change just as much as the princess does. So though the resemblance faded, it still prompted a, a crucial question in my head. How do you picture God responding to your sin? How do you picture God responding to your sin? Some of you may picture a Queen Eleanor-esque reaction, reprimanding you with what to do and what not to do. Maybe that's even how you read 1 Corinthians 13. Maybe you hear the voice of your earthly father telling you that you're not good enough. Or maybe you can hear your mother's disappointment. Or, or maybe it's not your parents, maybe it's your grandparents, or maybe it's your own self-condemnation. How do you picture God responding to your sin? And to take that question even a step further, how does your view of God affect how you respond to others when they sin? Or when they don't fit the expectations that you have for them, or they let you down. As we look at our text this morning, I want you to keep these questions in the back of your mind. If you haven't been able to join us for the past couple of weeks, we started a new series called Love. What it is, how it shapes us, and the heart of Christ as we go through 1 Corinthians 13. We kicked off the series by setting a foundation and looking at the importance of love. Then last week, Ben Mangrich started preaching through the list of love's attributes in verses 4 through 7, sharing that love is patient and kind, not envious or boastful, and not arrogant or rude. Today, we're going to pick up where Ben left off last week, reading the last part of verse 5 and verse 6. These verses say a lot about how we should treat others. And by the end, I want to show how it also reflects God's response to our sin. Before we dive in, I, I want to show you where we're going in three points. First, love puts others first. Second, love is merciful. And third, love has boundaries. Let me say that again. Love puts others first. Love is merciful, and love has boundaries. Would you join me in praying as we open God's word together? Father in heaven, 
you are a good father to us. You are the perfect father. We thank you for another opportunity to look at your word this week. We confess that this week we did not love others as we ought. In our thoughts, actions, and words, we pray that you will use your word to convict us of sin, to to care for our souls, and to exhort us to holy living. Help us understand what it means to love. In Jesus' name, amen. So once again this morning, we are specifically looking at the last part of verse 5 and verse 6. I hope you will follow along uh, this morning with your Bibles open in front of you. As I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, verses 4 through 7 are not meant to be an exhaustive list telling us everything that we need to know about love, but rather it is a particular list. Each item specifically handpicked by the Spirit through Paul to speak into the lives of the Corinthian church. One pastor points out that each of the traits of love listed in verses 4 through 7 stood directly opposed to the manner in which the Corinthians were described earlier in the book. It wasn't random generalization about love, but inspired specificity. This pastor describes the Corinthians saying, quote, They were impatient, discontented, envious, inflated, selfish, indecorous, or rude, unmindful of the feelings or interests of others, suspicious, resentful, censorious, or severely critical. And in this description of the Corinthians, we all can see that this isn't only for them, it is for us too. Because we are just as tainted by our sin nature and we're just as surrounded by other sinners. When we deal with others in the church, it is inevitable that someone will sin against us. Someone is going to let us down, fail us, belittle us, demean us, disagree with us. How do we respond to our brothers and sisters in Christ in these situations? Well, let's look at the middle of verse 5. It, love, does not insist on its own way. Love puts others first. Love does not insist on its own way. Love puts others first. We would be remiss if we ignored how this point relates to the book as a whole. So let's take a quick field trip back a few chapters and and look at chapters 8 and 9. So in chapter 8, Paul begins to address a specific issue in the church related to eating food that has been offered to idols. Essentially, uh, you you could say that there were just some in the church who felt okay eating food offered to idols, and there were some in the church who uh, weren't comfortable with it. And then these two groups then weren't seeing eye to eye. In chapter 8, Paul explains that, yes, it is okay to eat food offered to idols. But Paul doesn't stop there. He explains that not everyone in the church knows this. Not everyone knows that it's okay. Not everyone's conscience understands that it's okay to eat this food. So out of concern for these brothers and sisters... We should refrain from this practice. 
sometimes we, we think others may be in sin when, when really it's, it's a difference of conscience. The chapter ends, chapter 8 ends with Paul saying in verse 13, Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Love puts others first. Even though you may personally have the right and the freedom to eat meat, not everyone does. And so we put the love and care of our brothers and sisters ahead of our own personal freedoms. And and note here how the answer is not to shame those in the church who aren't ready to eat the food. It isn't to sit and persuade them to eat the food. It isn't to split the church into those free to eat the food and those whose consciences won't allow. The answer is to put others first. Even though they are right, that it's okay. Even though they are justified in their freedom, Paul calls them to freely give it up for the sake of others. Well, maybe this is just one specific issue for the Corinthians, you might say. Maybe it's contextual to food issues, and and realistically, we don't have a ton of those in the church. Uh But wait, there's more. Corinthians 9 broadens the argument as Paul addresses surrendering our rights for the sake of the gospel. Paul continues in chapter 9, verse 19, saying, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. I do it all for the sake of the gospel. Paul sees that there is a deeper issue going on beneath the surface level disagreements and arguments. The spread of the gospel is on the line. Love puts others first. It does not insist on its own way. Many of you know that I spent a year living overseas doing missions work after I graduated from Northwestern. I mostly worked with Muslim people, and and in Muslim culture, it is offensive to show the bottom of your foot to someone. The foot is considered unclean, and to show your foot to someone is to show them disrespect. But here's the thing. My favorite way to sit is with my leg crossed, with my foot on top of my knee, showing off the bottom of my foot to the entire world. And in my American culture, there's nothing wrong with this. When I see someone else sitting like this, I don't think for a second that they are showing me disrespect. I think that they look quite comfortable. I could have tried to explain to anyone that I offended that it wasn't actually offensive, I could have told people that I'm an American and and that I have the freedom to sit however I like. I could have insisted on my own way of doing things. After all, those things, they were true. And yet, for that entire year, it was my joy 
and privilege to surrender my right to sit that way. This small cultural difference was going to create a large spiritual barrier for anyone to truly hear the gospel. If my comfort sitting down was going to be an obstacle for anyone to come to know the Lord, the most loving thing that I could do was to put others first and surrender my right. This is the kind of thing that it's easy to see overseas when there's such a stark divide in culture. In our daily lives and in the church, it's much harder to see. How can you put others first for the sake of the gospel? How can you put others first in your marriage, among your friends, on social media? And here's the biggest question when taking the context of 1 Corinthians into account. How can you put others first for the sake of the gospel in the church? Where do you need to stop insisting on your own way and surrender your own personal rights for the building up of the body? What would our church look like if we stopped insisting on our own way, but instead spent all of our time and energy putting others first? If someone said we hurt them or they feel alienated or left out, we simply believed them and sought to make things right. If we spent so much time listening to others that we never thought twice about if our own voice was heard. If we intentionally reached out to people who are different from us instead of spending time with those in our comfort zone who agree with us on everything. If we lived with such a fervor for mission that we were constantly thinking about how we can reach those of different cultures and ethnicities in Evanston for the sake of the gospel. If we desired to care so well for our brothers and sisters that we were constantly reaching out to others just to check in and say hi instead of waiting for others to reach out to us first. How beautiful and appealing the church would be if we lived this way. How flourishing and healthy, how self-sacrificing and Christ-like. I could talk about this all day and I think the application is wide-sweeping. Maybe this could be a point for discussion in your post-church fellowship or in your ethos community this week. Let our lives be defined by surrendering our rights and putting others first. Let's move now to our second point. Love is merciful. Look at the rest of verse 5. It, love, is not irritable or resentful. It is not irritable or resentful. Love is merciful. To be irritable means to be aroused to anger, or more literally, to make sharp. Think of sharpening a knife. With each swipe on the sharpener, the blade gets a little pointier, gets a little more edge. Likewise, as someone grows irritated, with each passing moment, it's as if you can see the fumes start to come out of their ears. To be resentful is more internal. Many of you might have a footnote in your Bible with an alternate translation that reads, does not count up wrongdoing. I think this translation actually 
makes resentment easier to diagnose. To be resentful is a very harsh description and we don't like to think of ourselves that way. To count up wrongdoing is a more practical description. When you think of a person, can you remember their past wrongs and do you hold them against them still? Irritable and resentful are not the same thing, but they are related. They are both the overflow of an angry and unforgiving heart. Irritability and resentment are deeply seated in our lives and in our culture. It's almost normal and accepted to be angry and to hold things against others. And we love to give ourselves long leashes when it comes to irritability and resentment, especially when we feel it's out of our control. I actually saw a random tweet the other day that said, uh, quote, If I say I could eat, we've got about 32 minutes tops before I am flat out a different person. And ain't that the truth? Many of us have readily accepted the fact that being hangry is just an inevitability. For those of you who don't know, hangry is a combination of hungry and angry. When we are tired, it becomes okay to get grumpy. When we are driving, we can react however we want. Our car gives our heart the anonymity it needs to be its true self. When we're on social media, we can say things that we would never say to someone's face. We love using our circumstances to justify our irritable and resentful hearts. It just comes naturally. What doesn't come naturally to us is mercy. When I was talking about this verse with my wife, Penny, she reminded me of Matthew chapter 14. You don't need to turn there, but in the span of one chapter, Jesus first experiences the death of his friend, John the Baptist. Then, right after, a crowd approaches him in need of a meal. And then, when he should be going to bed for the night, his disciples find themselves tossed to and fro by a storm. Back to back to back. Through grief, through hunger, through exhaustion, Jesus never becomes irritable or resentful. Instead, he withdraws to pray. He feeds the crowd. He walks on water. And then, just a few chapters later, Peter asks Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus replies, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Brothers and sisters, who do you need to forgive today? Where are you counting up wrongdoing? Where is your heart prone to irritability? Love is merciful. Look now at verse 6. It, love, does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. In this verse, we see that love has boundaries. Love has boundaries. 
up until this point, as we've gone through 1 Corinthians 13, we've looked at love kind of indiscriminately. We haven't acknowledged the fact that there is a lot of evil in the world. And many of you have experienced horrible evil, hurt, and pain because of the sin of another. Others of you have wondered probably what love looks like in a world that embraces many things that we as Christians can't embrace. Are we just supposed to let people walk all over us? In verse 6, we see that to love doesn't mean to affirm everyone, approve of everything, or even, dis- or even agree with everyone. Tony Evans observes from this verse that love, quote, doesn't affirm sin or false belief. Love has boundaries. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. It is good to simply let your mind reflect on the wonders, glories, and beauties of God, to meditate on his word, to relish in the majesty of his creation, to reflect on the powerful ways that he's worked in your life, to rejoice in those truths. But this verse actually takes the idea of truth a step farther. To rejoice with the truth isn't only meant as an exercise of the mind, though it certainly includes that. Here it means that our life is in harmony with God's truth. Life in harmony with God's truth. It is living out the truth, righteousness, sanctification, a life that looks more and more like Christ. And that's why in the verse, truth is set opposed to wrongdoing. Romans 12.9 points out a similar dichotomy as this verse when it says, we should abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. It is not loving to rejoice with wrongdoing. It is not loving to encourage sin. It is not loving to celebrate evil. This verse in 1 Corinthians is an acknowledgement that though God created the world and called it good, sin has entered the world and entered our lives. Our, our hearts are rotten to the core without the working of the Spirit, bent towards wrongdoing and unrighteousness. Because of this, we don't want to live out God's truth. We, went, we want to live out our truth. We pursue the things that make us feel good instead of the things that God says are good. It's easy to see why the Spirit would inspire Paul to write this verse contrasting wrongdoing with truth. There are so many ways that this plays out in our lives where we're given a choice between rejoicing with sin or rejoicing with holiness. You can almost make a fill-in-the-blank exercise using this verse. Love does not rejoice with lying. It rejoices with honesty. Love does not rejoice with covetousness. It rejoices with contentment in the Lord. Love does not rejoice with laziness. It rejoices with working unto the glory of God. Love does not rejoice at talking bad about your coworker behind his or her back. It rejoices with a self-controlled tongue. Love does not rejoice with that harsh comment you made to your spouse to prove you were right. It rejoices with gentleness and living in an understanding way. 
Love does not rejoice with abuse. It rejoices with justice being served. Love does not rejoice with demeaning and condescending rhetoric. It rejoices with humility and kindness. Love does not rejoice with the loss of unborn babies, racial injustice, or treating the elderly as dispensable. It rejoices with a view of humanity where every person contains the full value, worth, and dignity of somebody who bears the image of God. Love does not rejoice with a contentious and divisive spirit, but rejoices with maintaining the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Whether in your own life or in how you influence others each day, we are faced with the decision to rejoice with wrongdoing or rejoice with the truth. And in this, we see how love has boundaries. If we want to truly love others, we must know what the Bible calls good and true and beautiful and what the Bible calls wrongdoing. Let me say that again. If we want to truly love others, we must know what the Bible calls good and true and beautiful and what the Bible calls wrongdoing. Yet, even as I list all of these things that we should not rejoice with, I want to also point out that in doing so, love doesn't lose all of its other attributes. This doesn't become a license to be impatient with people who don't share our worldview or to be rude to people we disagree with or to grow irritable when somebody continues to struggle with sin. Love still puts others first. Love still is merciful, but love also has boundaries. And this brings us back to the question that I asked you all to keep in the back of your mind at the beginning of the sermon. How do you picture God responding to your sin? If God is not like Queen Eleanor in the movie Brave, then what is he like? If he isn't up in heaven trying to control us and reprimand us, how does he deal with us? The better that we understand how God responds to our sin, the more we will know how to respond to others. If we want to truly understand what it means to love, we must look at the heart of Christ. Hebrews chapter 5 verse 2 says, He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward. In the book Gentle and Lowly, which I brought here as a visual for you all, uh, which Pastor Chipper actually mentioned this book a few weeks ago, Dane Ortland, the author, spends an entire chapter plumbing the depths of Hebrews 5.2 and exploring the implications for how Christ deals with his people when they sin. How does Jesus respond to our sin? Ortland says about this verse, Hebrews 5.2, The point is that Jesus deals gently and only gently with all sinners who come to him irrespective of their particular offense and just how heinous it is. When we sin, we are encouraged to bring our mess to Jesus because he will know just how to receive us 
He doesn't handle us roughly. He doesn't scowl and scold. He doesn't lash out the way many of our parents did. He goes on, Hebrews is not just telling us that instead of scolding us, Jesus loves us. It's telling us the kind of love he has. Rather than dispensing grace to us from on high, he gets down with us. He puts his arm around us. He deals with us in the way that is just what we need. He deals gently with us. He deals gently with us. Brothers and sisters, this is how Jesus responds to our sin when we come to him. And we see the gentle heart of Christ reflected in our passage in 1 Corinthians 13 this morning. Christ did not insist on his own way, but put others first by taking the form of a servant and humbling himself by dying on the cross. Christ is not irritable or resentful, keeping a track record of your wrongs, but rather he is merciful and forgiving. Christ does not rejoice when you suffer, when you hurt, or when you sin. He rejoices when you rest in his good and true promises. When we repent of our sin and trust in Jesus' perfect life, sacrificial death, and glorious resurrection, we are greeted by our gentle Savior with open arms. What amazing implications this has for the freedom we have to love others. We have the opportunity to reflect the gentleness of Christ. We can be people who put others first, even when we want to insist on our own way. We can be people who show mercy even when we are wronged. We can be people who put boundaries on love, not rejoicing with wrongdoing, but rejoicing with the truth. We, too, can reflect the gentleness that Christ has for his people as we rest in the gentleness that he has shown us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the love you display for us through the gentleness of Christ. That though we are ignorant at times and wayward at times, you only ever deal gently with us. As we seek to reflect this to others, help us to put others first, to be merciful. Help us uh, to understand the boundaries on love. We can't do this on our own, but we need the Spirit's strength. Keep these words from 1 Corinthians 13 on our heart this week. In Jesus' name, amen.